Hey everyone, before the big Hi Guys intro, please may I request of you to subscribe to and rate this podcast as apparently that's really important in the algorithmic world that is podcast land. Once again, please subscribe to and rate this podcast. On with the show. Hi guys and welcome to this super special episode of How to Wow starring the one, the only, go find me another Dame Judy Flipping Dench. She is such a wonderful human being. It's not funny. She agreed to do our podcast. I couldn't wait for the conversation. It's been a good week, actually. We've had some amazing conversations. Uh, straight after Dame Judy, we went over to Dame Emma Thompson's house to have a talk with her. And that'll drop in the next couple of weeks. That conversation, equally fascinating. Uh, there is the ongoing competition, the awards competition, that they're not taking part in, but we've sort of foisted them up against each other because Dame Emma Thompson has two Academy Awards and three BAFTAs, whereas Dame Judy only has one Academy Award, but she has 11 BAFTAs. From an awards point of view, who's winning there? You know, And it's ongoing, as I say, as a competition. But we talked to Dame Judy about those BAFTAs and, you know, as always, wearing her genius, her talent, so lightly on her sleeve. Um, she couldn't have been more magnanimous um, with every single response to every sort of kindergarten type um, uh, kiddie like excited question that I had for her she, she's just amazing, she's amazing she's 85 years old and she's absolutely amazing and I hope you really enjoy our chat together I'm going to listen to it again, cue the conversation Dame Judy, Chris here Hi Chris <laughs> How are you? <coughs> okay you oh. must. Oh, now are you still wearing that tinsel? <laughs> You're obsessed with my Christmas tinsel, aren't you? <laughs> well, I am. You wore it for two days. You never changed your clothes, of course. I know that. I only wore it so you could see me, you silly old man. <laughs> well, you succeeded. Right. You better tell everybody what we're talking about. Well, we're talking about last year. Blessed last year when we were at lunch, weren't we, with um, you inventors? And you wore, I think, I, I can't remember if you were in a suit. I was so dazzled by the tinsel around your neck. Yeah. And then and then the next day we met um, at, at something else where you were wearing exactly the same clothes and the tinsel. I suspect you've been up all night. Well, I hadn't been up all night, but I hadn't been home. So in the old days, you would have been right. But, but nowadays, you know, with a thousand children... And a couple of grandchildren. No, I, I went home. But um, look, let's be honest here. We went to a very, very posh lunch. I don't think you could probably find a posher lunch on the planet, let's be honest. And then the next Isn't day we went to a very posh, as drinks do, didn't we? A very, you know. We, we did. We were being very, very grand. Yeah. Would we? Would that be the hoi polloi we were with? What do you think? I don't know. I, don't, I'm, I've never, I can never figure out what hoi polloi means. Is hoi polloi a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think it's a general thing. <laughs> <laughs> hoi polloi, they're all over the place, Chris. The old hoys and the old polloys. So, so the, the lunch was a Fortnum and Mason lunch. Now, you inventors, um, he's the CEO, not for much longer at um, Fortnum and Mason. No, not for much longer. What a, oh, what a star he is. Yes, absolute superstar. I, I don't know if Fortnum and Mason ever needed turning around, but if, if it ever did, he, he would have been able to do it. But uh, he's just, he's, <clears throat> he's one of these guys, he's a CEO who's a superstar himself. You know, if he, if he, if he wasn't in business, he would be in show business. And he sort of is, isn't he, Judy? Well, he could he could sort the world out, I think, you inventors. Yeah. I could um he would do it very nicely, <clears throat> I suspect. 
uh, and those lunches are just wonderful, aren't they? And how they're lucky amazing. we are, aren't they're we, to be there? They're amazing. They're amazing. He does a real got, treat. Yeah, and they take place in the director's uh, in the boardroom in Fortnum and Mason, yes. and there's like between anything between twelve and sixteen people there. And he, you know, he invites people. He it's an old-fashioned style lunch, and this used to happen a lot. People used to invite lunches, uh, invite people to lunches who maybe had never met an interesting gang of people, and see what see what unfolded. I mean, you must have been to a few of those in, in the past, Judy. Um, I've been I've been to a few, but none quite like Ewan's. I mean, as you say, he gets the most wonderful cross section of people who do all sorts of different things. Politicians and and actors and writers and painters, and it's wonderful. Yeah, and, and and Fleet Street editors, or as they would have been in the past. But this used to happen a lot because you know I used to know Ronnie Fraser very well um, before he passed. Oh, away. me too. Yeah, we were at the Vic together, Ronnie Fraser and I. How was that? Come on. Oh, heaven, <laughs> heaven. I used to stand to watch the the, uh, the the graveyard, you know, Ophelia's graveyard, the fight over the graveyard at the end when he was the grave digger. And I used to stand there every night with tears pouring down my face. My God, he was a funny man. He was a very funny man. He was a fine actor as well. I mean, for people who don't Wasn't know, he? look up Ronnie Fraser, have a look at him. Um, and I met him in my local pub, so I was I was sort of cutting my teeth on the, on the telly. <laughs> oh, what a surprise! I know, oh, I know. What a surprise, Chris. But I didn't, you know, at the time. Believe it or not, Judy, I was <coughs> I was, um, I was quite fit and I quite looked after myself. But because I worked in the mornings on the telly, I didn't really have anything else to do all day. So I used to go for a couple of pints in the pub in the <laughs> afternoon. And Ronnie was always sitting at the bar, and I didn't really know who he was. And then over the years, I found out, and then I became one of his best mates. I was a pallbearer at his funeral, actually. And, uh, oh, were you? Yeah, and the, the stories that he told me, because <coughs> he he could have been world famous, but he wasn't quite, was he? Well, he was, well, well, I don't know. I mean, he was just the most marvellous actor. He, really he just, was. I suppose, I'm not sure that he'd have wanted to be Chris more than he was. He was the most wonderful actor. He was in everything I did at the Vic. And this is way back, this is 1957. Really, it's a long time ago. Yeah, no, he told me. He told well, he told me everything over the years, and he said, you know, and he gave me. He he told me the stories. What a storyteller! So I got, I got the, 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 the. The wit, the wit. The lowdown of everything. Yes. Got, oh, by the way, not you're not kidding. I'm not even for a podcast. Those conversations. Judy, seriously. Um, are you are you all right? By the way. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry about the coughing. I've had, it's nothing to do with the the dreaded disease. Right. But I, it's just a cough. I thought you'd given up smoking. I thought you'd given that up years ago, for heaven's sake. <laughs> it sounds like a smoker's cough. It sounds, Does it? It sounds like a... Would it be very convincing, wouldn't it, if I had to play somebody with a fag in my mouth yeah. all the time? Mikey, my husband, used to be in the Air Force yeah. with somebody who was incredibly mean, he said. And he used to be able... He never, ever shared his cigarettes. Right. And he used to be able to light a cigarette in his pocket <laughs> and put it into his mouth. <laughs> It's my ambition. Um, <clears throat> when, did, when did you start smoking, by the way? I didn't. I've never smoked oh, in my never, life. I thought you did smoke, I think. No, I've never smoked in my life. Ronnie used to tell me stories about him and Robert Mitchum smoking um, other things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Oh, I bet. I bet. I wasn't sure, because I didn't know, obviously, because I was a couple of generations younger than Ronnie. Uh, I didn't know that all the people he was telling me about, I didn't really know that he really knew them. I was thought I thought he was making most of it up. You know, he told me stories about John Wayne. 
Are you sure? Yeah, he told me stories about. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure, but he told me. He, he, you know, he told me loads of stories about Sean Connery and um, and Peter O'Toole. Um, and then I met Peter via via a Ronnie, and then we went. We went Ronnie Ronnie's 65th birthday. We said, "What do you want to do?" He said, "I'd like to go to Langans for lunch." And I'd like this to be six of us. I'd like you to be one and Peter to be another. And that's how I first met O'Toole. Uh, but then he used to talk about Sean O'Connery a lot. And um, when he was being buried, I I was the middle pallbearer on the same side as Peter O'Toole and Sean Connery. And I was really upset. And um, you know, I, and I said to me, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, I'm not sure I should be a pallbearer. <laughs> and they said, uh, they said, why not? I said, well, A, I'm upset and B, you know, Ronnie's a big lad, you know, that's not a light coffin. Yeah. And uh, this person said, don't worry, you've got James Bond in front of you and um, Lawrence of Arabia behind you, you'll be fine. <laughs> well, good casting. <laughs> very, and, uh, Simon, very good casting. Simon Ward was there as well. Oh, yeah. Simon, oh, God. All great, all great. All God, absolute, absolute legends. So you talked there about the about the Ovik in the in the late 50s. Now, often people yes. say to me, you know, if you could go, if you could go back in time, go anywhere, where would you go to? And I, I always say I want to be a, a teenager, late teens, early 20s, in the 60s. But of course, and I don't mean this impolitely, but you were sort of you were you were pre that, weren't you? So you were you you had a perspective on the youth of the sixties because you were a little bit older. What was that? What was it like to have a because you were just a half a generation older than the mop tops and the rock and rollers in the sixties? What was that? What was that like from your <coughs> point of view? Well, I don't know. I was the wonderful thing is that I was lucky enough um, to be employed all this time, uh, and so. I did see it from that point of view of being in the theatre and going on tour and being in America for six months. And um, so, but a lot of it kind of passed me by because I'm, um, what, I'm a classical music lover. And so <laughs> I missed all those, all those wonderful bands and things. It's terrible, isn't it? I mean, I heard them, but... But what was the groove? that you were, you were part of the scene, though, weren't you? Of course you were. I don't know, but I just I, I've just remembered one thing, and that is my very first day at the Vic, um, my first job and my first day at the Vic. Uh, we all had to meet. Uh, we were going to do Hamlet, mm -hmm. and we all had to meet. And the company, the most of the company, had been at the Vic before and had been on tour, and they were all came back and they were all wearing great big badges saying, "I love Elvis," <laughs> and and we we said. Who is who is Elvis? <laughs> and then and then we went to New York and uh, as part of the tour, and uh, I was then introduced to Birdland and the jazz scene mm. and New Miles Davis and God that was fantastic, so, just fantastic. So nights out with Miles Davis, watching Miles <clears throat> Davis in bars, what? Yes, yes, all that, all those things, and. Uh, Joe Williams, Count Basie. Count Basie, yeah, and oh God, it was! I loved it. I just loved it. And when you talk about, because you 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 don't call it the Ovik, you call it the Vic, don't you? Because because we call it the Ovik, yes. but you call it because it was the Vic um, when you were around. So so that's how we know. That's how we know you were there. <clears throat> yes. And, yes. But your first, your first, well, how old did you have been then? Twenty odd. Your first 22. night at the Vic. Twenty two. Twenty two to twenty three. I'm incredibly lucky, Chris. Uh, just ridiculously lucky. I got to <clears throat> play Ophelia as my first job and um, I mean, got very criticised for it. They said, how dare the so-called National Theatre of Great Britain choose somebody just out of drama school? 
And how dare they? But I did, the, thanks to Michael Benthall, who ran the Vic then, um, I stayed there from 57 to 61. And just, he said, well, you'll learn by staying here. And so I played parts and I understudied and and that's the way, you know, how lucky. Could, you, you can't have been luckier than that. So four years being schooled at the Vic, getting paid whatever you were getting paid, living the life. Yeah. Five pounds ten. Five pounds <laughs> ten a week. And how I much guess. How much was your digs? Uh, they, well, I, they were three pounds for us because I moved in with Barbara Lee Hunt and Juliet Cook to a most marvellous flat in Eaton Terrace. Wow. Very smart. Yep. Um, who is a friend of Barr's. Um, and it was three pounds each of us. That's nine pounds it was a week, which then was enormously expensive. <clears throat> but we managed to, to live on the on the two pounds. And what did you? What was the priorities with the two pound ten apart from food, obviously? Uh, getting there, getting to the vegan bath. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that far for a young twenty-two-year-old, is it? <laughs> Hop over the bridge. <laughs> no hop, no hopping for me, I tell you. Did you get to go out on Saturday nights then? Was that your big night out after the show? Um, no, we used to, the, the pub next to the Vic uh, used to close at 10 o'clock. Right. And so if we got, if the curtain came down before 10 o'clock, it was an enormous dash to get across the road <laughs> and into that pub next to the Savoy, right. which closed at 10.30. Right. And, but also then Covent Garden was open. Mm. And so they, or the pubs in Covent Garden stayed open all night, right. as Ronnie Fraser no doubt would have told you. <laughs> and so there, you know, you could go into the pubs there and sit there and have a pint. See, as Ronnie was telling me about a, a production of uh, The Long and the Short and the Tall, and it starred him, O'Toole and Harris. And I said, what was that like? He said, well, at the beginning of the run, it lasted about two hours. And by the end of the run, it was three and a half because they all nipped out to the pub, you know, in between in between whatever they had to do. And it just got longer and longer and longer. <laughs> was it originally called The Disciplines of War? I don't know. I wasn't there, Judy. <laughs> I've got no idea. Oh, pathetic, pathetic. Get back into your tinsel. <laughs> oh, sorry. I can only apologise. So were you always, I mean, it's very hard for you to say this about yourself, especially knowing your character. But were you always were you always a great actress? In as much as did it come naturally to you? Is it what you wanted to do? Were you driven? Were you never going to take no for an answer? How how was it for you pre those those old Vic sort of cutting your teeth days? You know, in in your mid teens, for example. I wasn't going to be an actress at all. It was only my brother Jeff, my my second brother, who only ever wanted to be an actor. My my eldest brother was a doctor like my father, but Jeff only ever wanted to be an actor. That's all he ever dreamt about. And I was going to be a theatre designer. And that's always what I thought, all that I dreamt about. And then in the 50s, I went to Stratford uh, to see a production of King Lear. And uh, the, the set was so brilliant that... Uh, uh, it was something I'd never kind of contemplated because I'd only ever thought of uh, a, a design for Act One and then the curtain coming in for an interval and then going up and the set had slightly changed. But this was just one fantastically open stage which nobody had to move. It, it became everything. And I thought, I don't have that imagination. So that's <clears throat> so when I decided if I could get into Central, I would. So, you see, I was a bit half-hearted, Chris, about it. 
That is so interesting. Actually. You know, your mum and dad, you know, worked around theatre. Your dad was a doctor, but also he was a theatre doctor. You know, not in a surgical theatre, but in a, in a theatrical yes. theatre, wasn't he? So... Yes, and they were, <clears throat> they were always going to the theatre, and we were always going to the theatre. Right. We were taken to the theatre all the time. And so, so what, 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 who, which greats did you see as a kid on the stage in the West End? I saw Michael Redgrave. Wow. As King, as, uh, King Lear. Mm-hmm. And I saw uh, Peggy Ashcroft as Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw Leslie Henson in And So to Bed at the, Duke, at the Duke of York's. That's the first time I ever went to London. And we saw rather racy, actually, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> A rather racy kind of musical. I adored it. I absolutely loved it. And what what kind of what kind of depth of talent did you did you sense screaming off the stage at the audience from from the likes of those people that you've just mentioned? Well, it's I don't know about talent. I can't <clears throat> ever judge anything because sometimes you can see somebody in something and it's absolutely wonderful. And then you see something that's absolutely frightful. So I don't think that it's ever really consistent. But um, <clears throat> you could. I mean, I think you're aware if somebody's on the stage and have something very, very kind of special that speaks not maybe not speaking to everybody in the theatre, but may speak to you. So you think it's, <clears> you <throat> think it's a general awareness to you? Because I, I sort of get what you say when you describe it like that. It's not as dramatic as you might think, but you could, this is there's a sense of something, some magic in the air, something special is happening. Maybe it's a combination of people on the stage or the words on the page. Yes, and the audience, because oh, yes. the audience, you know, yeah. they they bring an enormous amount. Um, what an audience contributes to a play is phenomenal, and uh, you could, you know, you get a feeling, and you can go out, and it, and, the, and it's a kind of palpable feeling you get in the audience. Isn't that interesting. So, would you, would you say that audiences were? Um, not easy to entertain, but more engaged on a particular night, say on a Thursday and a Friday when they could smell the weekend, or did they need? Were they more willing when they needed cheering up on a Monday or a Tuesday, or you know the matinee crowd? Was is there any kind of recognisable rhythm to that? Do you think? I don't think there's any rhythm to that at all. I think you can. I remember doing Much Ado once with Donald Sindon, and about three quarters of an hour in, somebody came. Two people came walking down the aisle. Um, into their seats, and Donald <laughs> pretended, of course, he had a watch, and he looked at his watch, and he looked at them, and he said, do you know the story so far? And he said, I'm perfectly happy to go back on it and fill you in. I mean, how glorious. And the audience completely rose to it. We had the most glorious evening. Oh, right, because that's, that's, <coughs> that's a real catalyst, isn't it? I love that. What, what about breaking the fourth wall? What's your, what's your take on that? Well, that's the job, isn't it? Really, I only do things by instinct. Yeah, you do, you do. and you always talk about this. You always because you don't. You hardly ever watch anything back, so you don't really know if you're any good, do you? It's just what other people tell you. I don't you. like. No, I don't like seeing. I don't like seeing things very much, because especially in films, because you know, in films, it's a question of what button do you press for that and that and that and that and that, and that you decide on, and then, and then it's done. The scene is done, and then you can't change it, and then when you see it, you think, oh. Grief! What a ghastly decision to have made. Is it's it, too late then. But in the things you have seen yourself in, what is what what draws your eye first? Is it the way you look? Is it your performance? Can you get can one get over oneself and into, you know, observing oneself in the third person to the benefit of what you might want to do in the future? Well, I think the 
the far, the far enough back it is, uh, it's it's easier to to look at it because you've forgotten what you've done. Right. So <clears throat> I've never seen a room with a view, for instance. I quite like to see that now because I think I could, I could probably watch that quite dispassionately. But um, there's lots of films I haven't seen. Um, but and so the further the far enough back it is, the more you can judge and look yeah. and think, oh, did it work or didn't it work or, you know. But if it's quite recent, then you just get intensely irritated <laughs> because you think that wasn't the way to do that. Yeah. I realise now, too late, yeah. too late, too late. Oh, no. So, so there's still, still a sense of sort of, you know, a hinterland of potential improvement that can't actually be achieved, but somehow psychologically you think... I can sort of go back. I, can I still... might, yes, I might do it this time. Yeah, I, I might still... get it this time. I can still smell it. Yeah, but yes. I, I know you don't like talking about your awards and things like that, but you know, just the eleven Baftas. You know, if you had to put two in a world title fight against each other, which two, which two do you fancy to win? Chris, I don't know. Come on. I don't know. I've no idea. I've no idea. Can you remember what they're all for? No. <laughs> I love it. Eleven, no, by the I way, eleven, eleven. Wonderful, wonderful. Come well, on. Well, I'm thrilling. Absolutely lovely. <laughs> and seven Academy Award nominations. Yeah. And then you win one for nine minutes well, worth of screen time. Is that right? Yes, for Elizabeth the First. Yes, for Shakespeare in Love. Some nine minutes, though, eh, to win a, an Academy Award. <laughs> oh, we had such a lovely time doing it. Yes, it was glorious. Have you watched that one back? I have watched that one. What do you think? What not do you think? recently. What, what do you think recently. of yourself? I said that somebody said the other day um, how comfortable was all that to wear. I said, all I can tell you is that it took three people to put it on me. And at lunchtime, I sat there and somebody with a spoon fed me the lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you. That's method acting <laughs> for you, though, isn't it? That's you being so. Yes. Of course, of course it is. That's a... I, wonder if that's a... I wonder if that's a record for the least number of screen minutes that's won the Supporting Actress Award. Wonder. Uh, I think it was, it was only about wow. eight or 11 minutes. I'm, I'm not sure how long. I, I don't know. I think it was nice. Jolly lucky, I'd say. Okay, and <laughs> of course, having been nominated seven times, have you been seven times? No. I've been... Uh... Oh, quite a few, quite a few times. Uh, Mike and Finty and I were all there... That that one, the one I wore, uh, won the thing for because I had to go to New York the next day, right. and so Mike and Finch brought the Oscar back and took it to the pub. <laughs> Which pub? <laughs> to my local here in Outwood. Oh, <laughs> the what? <bear>. The bell. <clears throat> what I love. Um, so that was good. That was very good. And then, um, then after that, mm. uh, Finchie's been with me, yeah. uh, and. Met Antonia Banderas, and that was an exciting moment. Who asked her if she had a light? I've never seen Fint's hand shake shake so much. But weren't her, weren't her hands super glued together at the time because of a malfunction with her nail file varnish or false nails or something? Nail that she had trouble with the false nails. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so did... we've laughed about it. We've laughed about that more than we did actually about the Oscars or being at the Oscars. But she did actually super glue her hands together and then the 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 man she fancied more than any other human being that's existed asked, asked her for a light. Asked her for a light. Quite right. Quite right. Was that the same year you got locked out of the Oscars? I can't remember. Didn't you get locked out and you're, oh, you're yes, asked to did. wait or something? And we did, yes, we were. What happened there? We were, 
we well we were we were late because you know all those huge cars white people don't go on a bike i don't know but those huge cars and things and um yes we were asked to uh we were asked, uh, they said, sorry, we're closing now. <laughs> and so we were left between two doors, I remember. Uh, and then suddenly somebody came and said, no, 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 do come in. I said, thank you so much. <laughs> Wasn't this after Charlize Theron had barged past you saying, I'm Charlize Theron, can you get this little it, these two little ladies it, out of my way, please? You know much better than me. <laughs> you know much better than me, Chris. She, has, she arrived and said, I have to be in there. That's the only reason we got in. She said, I have to be in there. So they opened the door and in we went. <laughs> so she got, Charlize Theron got Dame Judi Dench into the Oscars and Little Finchie. Yes, but then, but then you sat in the wrong seats, you silly mare. Did we? Didn't you, didn't you sit, I don't remember that. Didn't you sit in Morgan Freeman's seats or Samuel L. Jackson's seats or didn't you have to move? Oh, don't, don't say Morgan Freeman and Samuel L. Jackson to me. Sorry, can only apologise. <laughs> I should go, I should go right off now. You go weaker than oh. Heavens. Oh, two beauties. <laughs> yes, I, I'd forgotten that we sat in the wrong seats. Well, you know it, Chris. You know it. You tell me. No, well, I th that's what I heard. This is a story that I heard. It all happened on the same... I think by the way, it could, it could be an am amalgamation. You know how these nights swim into one, you know, from one Oscar ceremony <laughs> to the next. It's happened to us all, Judy, for heaven's sake. What's wrong with you? Um, now, to talking of blokes you fancy the pants off, right... <clears throat> Um, how oh, did, hello. Did you ever share this with Michael, by the way? Did you ever share who, who you fancied to each other? Um, no, I don't think we did. Because <coughs> you had a Sydney Poitier moment. Tell us about that. That was a good moment when I was doing <laughs> Amy's View yeah. on Broadway, the play. Yeah. And Richard Eyre, who directed it, was in my room. Uh -huh. And it was after a matinee. There was a knock on the door and Sydney Poitier walked in. In a brown Mac. I'll never forget it. What a beautiful man. He was absolutely wonderful. My mum had the hots for him. Like, I mean, she she, you know, she, she never mentioned beauty. any other blokes. There was my dad and no other <laughs> bloke in the world apart from Sidney Poitier. <clears throat> Simple as that. Well, I don't blame her. Was a beautiful man and very, very, very quietly spoken. Yeah, real gentle. So I was, yes, I was, you could have poured me out for this. <laughs> <clears throat> Board yourself out. Um, oh, God. And when you're in the big shows, the big productions, you know, I mean, do you always know when somebody's in the house, somebody special's in the house? No, not unless you're told. No, no, I know. When we did Macbeth mm. uh, at uh, with Ian McKellen, mm -hmm. directed by Trevor Nunn, um, it was in the round. And on one night, I think it. I think it might have been Peter Brook, but I'm not sure. One night, Peter Brook was there, and the whole performance slightly turned round towards him. But on the next night, Fred Zinnerman was there, <laughs> sitting in the opposite seat, so the whole performance turned right round the other way. That is so, so funny, isn't it? You could always pretty well tell if somebody was there. That's funny. And then you know you'd want it to go so well. Yeah. I remember. I remember Johnny Neville coming to see Cabaret. And I dried in the middle of one of the songs. Oh. I did. And I'd been doing it for five months, I suppose. <laughs> See, it's fatal to know because um, you just overdo it because you're so anxious. Yeah, you can, and they all say, you know, you should train at 110% and then give 85% on the night and it'll grow to the 100 that you want. But if you try for 100, you're going to get 50%, you know, because you get all that inner turbulence, don't you? Yes, and dry and get silly and fall over. 
have you have you have you ever fallen off the stage? Don't or? say have you ever fallen. <laughs> of course I've fallen off. Chris, I've fallen in nearly every play I've ever done. Well, you need to be I've more careful, off. for heaven's sake. <clears throat> I know. <clears throat> in the middle of uh, a little night music, Larry Guitard was singing to me, "You must meet my wife." <laughs> And he was—he he turned round to stroll in the opposite direction before turning back to me and couldn't find me because I'd fallen over <laughs> behind the sofa. <clears throat> but I've always been very prone to it. Okay. I'm afraid. <laughs> That's good. Um, now, not good on my pins. We didn't ask you. Uh, we didn't ask for any listeners uh, on the show to, to text in any questions, but some did anyhow because I was talking about the fact you were going to—we were going to have this conversation on the radio show this morning before we've embarked upon it. And uh, several people texted in about, "Can you ask her, Dame Judy about her love for trees?" Now I know I know a bit about your love for trees, but is it a specific <coughs> overt love for trees? Is it horticulture in general, or what? No, it's not. It's not. Um, it's not. I love the garden, and I love horticultural jet, but it is trees specifically. Because when I was really a small girl, you used to see lorries with tree huge trees on them all cut down. And and irrationally I used to get upset about it. Um and say and they said they're just taking trees down. They're just taking trees. Um but I've so I've always been um a huge lover of trees. And in the garden here, uh, everybody, uh, all our friends who have died, we plant a tree to them. And so we've got quite a lot of trees. Mind you, there's practically another forest to go in still now. Um, but um, and then watching a tree grow and then and, and is, is glorious. And then not long ago, I was sent a tiny little acorn and an acorn vase, and you put the acorn, well, it wasn't a tiny acorn, actually, it's rather a big acorn, but you put it in the vase, and you put it, uh, fill the vase full of water, and just rest it in, and now, that was about four, f I don't know, I've lost count of time, days, date, <laughs> it's now a foot tall, it's an oak tree, it's got oak leaves on it, and so what we call it Brentford, it's got a very nice name. Um, and then that'll go into the garden. And then, of course, I got to do a programme in Borneo where, uh, where, you see, where you see these incredible trees and you see a great canopy of trees. And then, then of course, you see many all being cut down for the oil. It's very distressing. Do you have a favourite tree? Oak is my favourite. Because it's Oak a is. stoic and stalwart or so, so British well, or what? It's, uh, I have Oak in my family as a name. Right. My grandmother was Bessie Oak. Um, and so my grandson has got Oak in his name, Sammy. Mm. Um, and so I do love them. But I yesterday bought um, a glorious maple, which is so beautiful at the moment. And you know that they change all the time. And then suddenly, suddenly <clears throat> in this program, somebody uh, offered me one of those machines that you, it's like a stethoscope that you put to the bark. Brilliant. And you hear this enormous rush of water. You know, you think trees are just standing there waving their leaves. They're not at all. Yeah. They're getting on with it all the time. I remember the pictures of you doing that by the tree. That was fascinating. Yes. It's so beautiful. And the way they talk to each other, because trees talk to each other, don't they, as well? They, they, yes, they, uh, they're able to converse under the ground 
through, you know, through little little fibers. And they can warn, another tree can warn another tree of, of, a, of a, a plague of insects and things. Yeah, the cows one was interesting, I thought. When a, a cow goes into a new field and there's low-hanging leaves and the cows then eat the leaves off that tree and then the tree thinks it's under attack. So then it's, it expels this chemical um, which makes the leaves yes. taste bitter, which is fine for that tree, but then all the other trees around do it as well, having not had anything chew on its leaves just because they know. Yes, because they've been told. Not so hot for the cows, mind you. <laughs> but because they've been told. <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic. It's all going on and we're sitting around. I know, I know. We think we, think we know things. We know nothing. Know. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. Which is your eldest um, tree that's been planted for a, for a friend? Oh. Ish. Um, oh, God. Ned Sherrin, quite old. Frank Hauser. His must be quite, quite is quite big, and I uh, we planted a tree when Sam was born, and he's now twenty three, and so is the oak tree twenty three. It's immensely tall. That's a nice um, idea, isn't it? What what rate do <clears throat> oak trees grow in comparison to kids? Then I wonder, because you must know that. Well, this is very very tall. <laughs> I mean, I, I should take a photograph of Sammy's very tall, too. Yeah. I should take a photograph of Sammy next to the tree, yeah. and then you'd see both 23. I've always wondered why we stop growing, why we don't just keep growing as human beings. I wonder, what, oh, me, what, what me too, is? Chris. I've wondered that all <laughs> More than most. <laughs> More than most, I tell you. See, that's, yes. that's interesting as well, isn't it? Because you're so diminutive, you know, that can go against you. It can go for you as well, but it would. one would imagine if you had to bet on it in the 50s and 60s, you, one, you, you might bet it would go against you as a woman. Of course, why not? <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so. And so, so uh, but, I mean... Go on, sorry, Karen. You, well, you can counteract it, can't you, by wearing a tall hat or tall shoes. Yeah, or just being tall amazing, just being... And also, oh. see, when you're on the stage, I always thought this about... Act, uh, act tall, Chris, act oh, tall, act tall. Act That's tall. what we have to do. Yes. Yes. I always thought that when I was a kid and I used to go to the theatre as a kid, and then, you know, you might meet some of the some of the cast backstage and they, they were usually smaller because they're on the stage and you're looking up. And I also thought the same of air hostesses when I was a little boy as well. I thought they were all really tall, but it's just because you're sat down whenever they're of course serving it you. Is. <laughs> and you're looking up. But I have had an idea which I would like to do very much, and that is I would like to do a play yeah. where the furniture and the, everything is smaller so that I have to dip my head as I come in through a door. Because <laughs> that's your dream. <laughs> in the Bancroft Gardens by the Avon and by the by Stratford, there are some wonderful willows along along in those gardens. And Trevor Nunn once saw me walking along there and walking under them and dipping my head. He said, why don't you just avoid them? I said, because I like just to, you know, feel that I have to dip my head to get under something. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like when you're getting out of a helicopter. You don't need to duck at all. There's no chance of <laughs> Trevenon, let's talk about Trevenon for a second or two. Because Trevenon, yes. you know, legendary theatre director. Now, for, for those of us who don't, oh. don't work in the theatre, what does that mean? Why is he so good? What, what's the difference? What is the difference? Well, he has a wonderful concept of what he wants to do with a play. Um, but it's... Ne the times I've worked with Trevor, he, I mean, he, there's so much left to the actors to contribute to his concept of what the play should be and how it should be, that it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful working relationship. Mm. Um, 
And I mean, when we did Comedy of Errors and we did classes every morning with Gillian Lynn, Trevor used to join in and do kind of star jumps across, across the room. It was absolutely glorious. And also, you know, he he allows you to invent things. So he gives you such leeway. And yet he, he you know, I, I watched Comedy of Errors just the other night. And I don't, I think I must have watched it a very long time ago. But the inventiveness of it was just remarkable. And between Trevor um, Nunn and John Napier, who designed it, I mean, it was, it was, everybody felt as if they were going in to some kind of Greek uh, port or fishing village that they'd been and stayed in, because everyone was out hanging up clothes and we could wave to the audience. And, oh, it was simply wonderful. And what would you say the most important thing is, you know, when you get a company together for a particular production, you know, would it would it be trust? Would it be fun? Would it be a combination of the two? Combination of the two, absolutely. And just wanting to kind of um, uh, open your mind out to something that you may not have thought of at all. Yeah. And also want, yes. wanting to go to work as well. That's so important, isn't it? Yes, running to go to work, that's what Mike, Mikey used to say. He said, this is, he'd come back on the first day, it's going to be one of those jobs that you run to work for. Oh, and, you never, and that was very much at Stratford. And you never want to end as well. And you never want it to end. <laughs> and when it does, it's, you know, it's terrible. Yeah, I used to get really upset at the end of family holidays when I was a kid, you know, because you meet new friends as a kid instantly in the first minute and you, you think that's it for life. And then the Friday night before you're going on the Saturday, mum and dad say, say well, that's it. It must be like that times times a thousand for an actor. I know it is like that, and and uh, and especially if you're in a company for a year, yeah, or four, years. or more, yeah, yeah, you know, or four years, or you know, the American tour we had was six months, so that was very difficult at the end of it. But you make friends for life. I mean, theatre. I've had I've got friends. My friend Barley Hunt was uh, at, went to the Vic. Uh, she and I were at the Vic the same day, which was something like September the 9th, 1957. And so we've been friends ever since. You make marvellous friends. Yeah. And they remain your friends for the rest of your life. And what about the sort of... What about the... Um... The, the precariousness of being an actor. You know, I know lots of actors. I was married to a, a fantastic actress. And, um, you know, I just think... It's not heroic in as much, you know, nobody's set, you know, winning wars or saving lives, but there's a certain sort of uh, fearlessness about the life of an actor, even a really successful one, not knowing where the next job's going to come from. What's that? What's it like to live with that uncertainty? I imagine that that's part of what, what we need, that, it, that slight insecurity. Um, it's not. It's not uh, much. It can be not much fun, but there is something very exciting about it. Uh, in that you can be, you know, you can be not knowing what you're going to do, and then quite suddenly something comes up, and maybe even develops into something else. I don't know. But uh, but it's oh, that's why I feel at the moment so so aware of all those young people just coming into the theatre and leaving drama school and coming into the theatre for the first time or into television or, oh, I, I don't know how, um, I don't know how one can give anybody any comfort about that. No, I, I get that entirely. And we've been, you know, we've been hearing this a lot from people coming on the show and, 
you know, we're in a similar business ourselves. <clears throat> Radio is probably the easiest thing to do, you know, under these kind of conditions. Yes. But I think the 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 sure. brightest light at the end of the tunnel, or the most realistic. Um, sanguine light at the end of any tunnel that I I can think of is what the live bands have been saying to me that have been coming into the show. They've, they've been saying, you know, it is tough. We've got, got to support the people who aren't getting paid. But when we can perform again, boy, there's going to be one yes. hell of a party. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's a kind of positive way of looking at it, I must say. Yeah. Are you a Quaker? Yes, I am. What does that mean? <laughs> It's uh, it's being a member of the Society of Friends, and they're Quakers. And I went, I my family wasn't. I went to a Quaker boarding school uh, in York, and um, they go to meeting Quaker meeting, which um, which comprises of a whole lot of people sitting in a room, or maybe not many people, but in our case, two schools, our brother's school and us, all sitting around, and you sit there and you meditate and you. And um, somebody might get up and say something, or they might not, or several people might get up and say something, one after another. And I kind of thought, when I was about 15, I thought, this is absolutely perfect for me, because it gives you a quiet middle. And it just, um, let me sound off, doesn't it? A quiet middle. <clears throat> I don't think that's what I've got, a quiet middle, but it does give you um, <laughs> just time to... Um, assess things and you know it suits me very well see i really like the sound of it judy that's why i'm asking you about it well you could come to meeting with me i when i was at nottingham i took alan howard and teddy woodward they wanted to come to meeting so i said okay but alan howard was very very nervous uh and he said what am i doing i said you don't do anything just sit just sit and be quiet <clears throat> and and maybe somebody will get up and say something, or maybe not. Anyway, we went to the meeting at Nottingham, and we sat down, and next to him, a woman suddenly opened her bag and took out a packet of biscuits and started eating them. And Alan turned to me and said, is this usual? <clears throat> I said, I've never known it before. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> never before. That whole idea of sitting down contemplatively and... and... I don't know. Are you in a circle? Are you facing, you know, somebody? Is there a leader? Or? No, it's usually... No, no, no. There are, there are the elders of the meeting right. who probably sit in a, in a in a square. There's a Bible on a table if you want to refer to it or read it. or, And then everybody sits round. And um, there's a wonderful meeting house in Come to Good in Cornwall, mm -hmm. in that lovely village called Come to Good. And there's the most marvellous meeting house there which um, is just like a, an old barn. And uh, it's just exactly as it was, I think, all those years ago. And that's very, it's very um, conducive to being quiet and being able to meditate a bit. Well, why is it not bigger? Because it sounds perfect, for, especially for now. What, you mean Quakerism? Yeah. It is very big. It is very big. Is it? There's a huge meeting house on the Euston Road. And you'll find nearly, well, in most cities, there's a Quaker meeting house. So are you, a woman as, uh, are you a woman of faith as well as a Quaker? Well, yes, Quakerism is what my faith is. Right, I see, I see. Okay, but, but, and it's all the thing. But it doesn't have to particularly pertain to the Bible. Well, no, it's, it is pertaining to uh, Christ and, right. and religion. Right, okay. So there, so there is the acceptance of a higher power. Oh, certainly. See, that's why I like it. That's why I like it. Oh, certainly. 
Because how can they not be? Back to the trees in a way, if you know what I mean. Back to the trees a bit, yes. Yeah, They're so. all getting on with it, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> but you've got to... See, it's, it's funny because... You, <laughs> you know, can come with me anytime I'm, you like. Judy, I'm in. Well, I used to live in Godalming. Yes, and God, I used to, to to get to the station, I used to have to pass. There was a Quaker house there. And I just and it's got a sign outside. It looks very welcoming. It looks a bit like a pub, the sign, if I'm not being, if I'm yes. being honest. And, there you are. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> the Quaker Arms. I'm in. You could just go in and sit down. <laughs> nobody, yes, Quaker Arms. Come into the Quaker Arms. Um, nobody... You would you know you get a wonderful welcome and you just go in and sit down and just sit and wait and then somebody might get up and say something yeah. or sometimes they might not you can go for a whole hour without anybody it's rare that but sometimes it's happened but i went when i was in philadelphia i went to meeting and nobody draws breath one person got up after another i, I mean in quick succession the whole way through the hour what is interests me about that are two things as far as you're concerned number one is actually you, you you are famously um you, you do not like to be alone you're the opposite of um who was it um was it Greta Garbo who didn't like to be alone Colin? yes yeah right. you didn't like to be alone <laughs> you're the opposite of her <laughs> yeah you, you know with your sort of meditative um Quaker uh, um, education if you like or, or enlightenment you know you'd think you'd be ideal at that and then the other thing would be about the stillness in your acting but first of all tell us about this not wanting to be alone is that just because you, it's more fun to have people around and you just love to have fun yeah it, no it's just that I, I get very bored with my own company right I, if, as long as I've got something to do I'm all right for a little while mm -hmm. but then I'm not, I'm not you know not uh, not too hot at it then after that okay. uh and I've never been good at it. Perhaps it's because I've had two brothers and, you know, we've always had a house full of people and, um, you know, there's always been family around. Lucky me. <laughs> Very. And, and still is, thank heaven. And you deserve it. But the other thing I take from the Quaker story <clears throat> is is I've always thought, you know, and I'm only, you know, I'm only somebody who watches what you lot do and um, in awe of everything that you do. Um, the people in the acting profession, film production, theatrical production, direction, you know, art, graphic design, wardrobe, makeup, the whole thing I think is unbelievable. You, 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 you give us an escape and you transport us to a land, you know, lands uh, far, far, far and away. And they're unbelievable, unbelievable, like magic. It is human beings doing actual magic together. But in the middle of it all, I always sense a real... Some, sometimes. Sometimes, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the, the sunshine, <laughs> not the rain. But, um, but in the middle of it all, I always sense from you a real stillness. And that's why I think you are so amazing in what you do, because you just... You you just look down that lens and you or whatever it is or you, you know when you're on stage and whatever you say I think I think you really I feel like you really mean it I think it comes from an infinite place within you and a very still place and a very silent place actually and that you talking about the Quakers I wonder if the two are connected or you know that was how you were anyway or this is what it's given you has it helped you am I reading too much into it. I hope it's helped me, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm going to remember what you said and probably record it and play it to myself all the time <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know. I, I mean, I, 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 I've watched actors and the stillness of actors on the stage. I would love to think I've got that too. I would love to think it, but I'm not, I'm not aware of that. But um, I think it's an essential thing, and maybe it is. Maybe that's exactly what is. If I have got any of it, maybe it is from... Being a Quaker, I don't know. I would like to attribute it to that. How lovely. 
But even in this interview, I sense that, you know, you know, we're not face-to-face because we can't be. It would be lovely to be, but we can't be, but we have been. Oh, wouldn't it just yeah. be? But I get, oh. I get the sense that you are totally present. You are, everything you do, I think you give it 100%, you know. And I feel that now, and I feel that when I've heard you talking to other people, and I just think, this is why she's so bloody good. Because you don't do it, you know, A, if you, I don't imagine you do too many, take too many things on and B, then when you do something, you give it your full attention, not because you have to, just because you know that's just the best way to do it. I don't know, Chris. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not aware of any of it. I mean, I just, um, I love working. I love it, and I and I and the commitment to the work I've always loved. Because if you're not, you know, if you're lucky enough to be cast and part of something, then you know you're really lucky. Get on with it, uh, and if you don't want to do it, don't do it. You know, if you're not going to have that feeling, um, and so uh, and commitment is to do, of course, with who directs you and the people you're with, and and your commitment to the piece of work you're doing. You do it. No, I do, and I love it. And I forgot to do it for a few years, but then, you know, you're all the better for it if you come out the other side. You know, when, you, when, yeah, you, when, yes. when you're on a job that you haven't liked it, and I don't want to get negative talk because that's really not what I want to do, but I just want to, for other people listening who may be doing something they don't quite, isn't quite the right fit, but once you've committed, you've got to do it because that's, that's your responsibility. When you've been in that situation, how do you approach that for the benefit of others listening? You go about it really as a commitment to the people you're with, I think. If you're not enjoying something, I mean, then do it. Uh, and maybe the other people are, or maybe you just fit. You, think you're in a kind of tricky place. I don't know. For one thing, it's not the job to convey that to an audience. If, if it's in the theatre, it's not your job to convey that to an audience. And you might as well get on. Do you want, is, does that make sense to you, Chris? Yeah, but no, 100%. It's not their fault you're having but, a hard time. No, quite. And so you must, you know, 100% commit yourself to whatever it is you're doing. Afterwards, you can moan and get on with it. (laughs) But at the time, just get on and do it and and do it for some, you know, do it for somebody. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny you say that. Um, (laughs) Because you've never been renowned as a moaner, but it has been said, you know, she doesn't suffer fills. Why would anybody want to suffer fills anyway? But... How do you deal with that situation? Is it is it a look? Is it a, a whisper in somebody's ear? Is it is it, <laughs> is it tact? Is it nuanced? Or is it, is it screaming and shouting? No, it's none of those things. That I mean, no, it's none of those things. Uh, does it mean I'm fierce? Does it mean does it mean that I don't if I don't suffer fools gladly? Does it mean that I'm fear a fierce person? No, not at all. Not for a second. I don't ever remember being. Uh, I think I read. I think I read. So I think I read somewhere um, a journalist, a good writer actually, uh, Giles from Vogue, when he did that lovely piece on you in Vogue, which was a lovely, lovely piece. And um, he said, I, I think he said, I suspect uh, Dame Judy doesn't suffer fools, but I, and I suspect, I suspect that also. And I'm going to move on to another question now because <laughs> I'm, I'm getting nervous. I'm feeling like the fool. She may not suffer. Oh my god! This is how she I deals with. You... This is how she deals with it. You felt. You felt a really strong look, didn't you? Yes, I down did. This yes, I did. Oh, <laughs> yes, my God. I, I, did it, I did it down the wire to you, Chris. It was, yeah, it was the second night tinsel Gave look. Gave you a really sharp look. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. It was the second night tinsel, same clothes look. Yeah, she said, I mean, she said, Chris, for lunch, for one lunch it was funny, 
for for one lunch the day before and evening drinks not fun unacceptable unacceptable is what it was um suspect i thought the next very night. very sus very <laughs> sus and indeed pecked um now the the, the drinks do that <laughs> that i met you at you were with the, the zookeeper right now um tell us about the, zoo the zookeeper yeah as much as you want to tell us about this how did you meet the zookeeper i know by the way tell everybody how you met the zookeeper <laughs> He's not a zookeeper. He's the he's the um, he's the uh, he, he he has a British Wildlife Centre. Yeah. He, yes. He would like to actually to be called zookeeper. So maybe that would do. Um, how did I? We used to we used to pass, um, and a passion in our family are otters. And um, every time Fint and Sammy and I passed in the car or something, I said I'd say that man in there has got otters. Got otters that man in there, and but we never went in. We never went in, and then um, we went. We were taken once by a friend of ours, and um, and that's how I met David. And uh, he he came and found us at the otter enclosure, and I got in to feed an otter. That was very exciting, except that nearly got my finger. Um, but uh, that was very exciting too. Um, and then um, after after that. I opened the squirrel, the red squirrel enclosure, uh, because he breeds red squirrels. And uh, so I went and this little tiny little red squirrels were in a cage. They have a wonderful enclosure here and they were taken in and the press were there. And I opened the cage and you couldn't see, you couldn't see the squirrel jump out. It went so fast. And the, the, the pressman there said, um, yes, could you do it again? And could the squirrel go slower? Could the squirrel go slow? <laughs> I mean, no, no control over it at all. Yeah, that's anyway, the, that's the opposite of I, Trevor Nunn. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And uh, so I opened it. Of course, the squirrel went just as fast. I don't think the squirrel would even photographed. It was so fast. But anyway, that's how I met David. See, this is reportage for you. I heard it was a badger sanctuary, but it was it wasn't. It was a red squirrel home thing. It's it's everything. It's all British mammals. Oh, it's all I see. British, um, you know, it's weasels and and uh, stoats and uh, red squirrels and owls and um, what else? And rats and mice and foxes. Uh, it's lovely. It's just lovely. And you've you've always liked animals. You've always liked wildlife. Um... Is it true that you work with 80 tortoises on SEO Trot? That's 80 stunt tortoises. Yes, I hardly did. Dustin did. Um, but some of the 80 for, uh, tortoises were prop tortoises, but not many, not many. <laughs> um, and, and so it was poor Dustin who had all these tortoises all over it. But during the war, we had 17 cats. Well, as a family? Home, as a family. Were they evacuated cats or were they feline evacuated? Well, nobody or? could, nobody, yes, nobody could feed, nobody could feed animals. So they were all pushed out and we used to take them all in. 17 cats? Because my, we did. Wow. And this is the first time in my life I haven't got a cat, a dog, and my goldfish died too. Oh, no. It's a very sad story, Chris. It's a really sad I was, I was, We haven't quite followed It's quite really sad. We, we were on to a very, very jokey bit, and now we've gone to a very sad bit. Well, you took us there. I mean, <laughs> but I suppose I don't really know how to come back from this. Uh, so how long... Goldfish question, quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I gave it the kiss of life. It died yes. when it was very, very little goldfish. I gave it the kiss of life, mm. and it grew to be about six, six inches long. 
Right. In a bowl. A classic bowl or an aquarium? Maybe. No, in a kind of, you know, nice tank. Yeah. Was it aerated? Yes. <laughs> Did it have a little air pump? Kind of? Um, Yes. It had all those things and... Well, listen. You mentioned oh. you mentioned cats. Let's just talk about cats. The the movie. Come on, for heaven's sake! What a smash! Oh, really? Yes. Yes. They'll be, they'll be, because the kids are the kids are loving it now, aren't they? I thought it turned like because the Greatest Showman went through the same journey. Don't you recall? No. <laughs> no, I don't. The, well, the Greatest Showman no, str str struggled for a bit, and now it's like now it's the thing. And apparently, cats is having a second, literally, one a second lease or, or, or the second of its nine lives as a cinematic. Production. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, that's very good news. Well, that is very good news to be told. Well, what was it like to I'm work really on? I'm really glad. It was difficult to work on. Was it? Why was that? It was hard. Hard. It was just hard. Really? Um, <clears throat> yes, because, well, you know, it's um, those dancers were so brilliant. And I don't know how they did it, you know, because those, the, the, oh, gosh, the dancing was simply wonderful, I thought. Um, and having to do that again and again, you know. Yeah. They were picked up very, very early in the morning and brought in. and Oh, they were so brilliant. So there we are. Yeah, it's the scale, maybe the scale, because you hear this about, I mean, the legendary film everybody has about uh, similar things is The Wizard of Oz, isn't it? It took like a million years to make and everybody went crazy who worked on it. It's a similar kind of thing. I've never seen The Wizard of Oz. What? I've never seen cats either. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. I, no, I've never seen The Wizard of Oz. Oh, well, that's interesting. Should I? Yeah, absolutely you should. Have you seen Citizen Kane? No. Oh, my goodness me. I used to... I, oh, lots of it. Oh, you, could, you could be here for a week. Okay, so films Dame Judi Dench hasn't seen. Uh, so far, <laughs> it's a pretty high bar. So she hasn't seen The Wizard of Oz, everyone, and she hasn't seen... No. Um, Citizen Kane. Have you seen Gone no. with the Wind? Yes. That's all right. But then. I saw when I was very little. This is what put me off, Chris. Mm. When I was very little, I saw Bambi. Yeah. And it's his mother gets in that fire. Yeah. That's his head. And then I saw Snow White with that that nasty lady biting the apple. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of put me off. And then I saw. Dumbo, which I've forbidden my daughter Fint to see, and Sammy, because she has to say goodbye to that little, little baby through the bars of the oh, thing. No. Well, it, yeah. it's it's all made to make us cry and well, be very very sad. The, the first film my mum ever took me to um, was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and we had to leave because I was too scared. So I sort of know what you're talking about. Well, it's either you're made very scared or you're made very, very sad. <laughs> yeah, and then cinemas were Isn't massive, it? weren't they? Because cinemas were scary places because they were big and they were cavernous and they were very, very dark. And they were dark, yes. yes. And the screens right. were massive as well. And the, and the sound was quite loud. Yeah. So have you seen The Godfather? No. Titanic? Yes. Fast and Furious? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, you got to see those. <laughs> there's seven of those babies waiting for you. There's a year, uh, there's a year's worth of films, seeing three films a day that I haven't seen waiting for me. Yeah. Well, 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 I can't see very well now, so maybe I'm missing out on it all. But one of the forever. one of the best games you can play is you you look at the Oscar Academy Award um, winners for best film, and then you look at the mm -hmm. films that came runner up to that 
film, you know, in particular years. And yes. some of the years are astounding. It's like, oh, my goodness me, all those films would win this year. And if you can get on that particular yes. trip, that's a fun trip to be on. Yes, I bet. I bet that's good. Uh, we've got to talk about Bond, um, because if we don't, uh, then uh, I'd just be rubbish at my job. So is it true that you you did Bond <laughs> second time around or first time around because of your dad? No, no, no. Because of Michael. Oh, because of my oh, Michael. Michael. Michael persuaded you. Sorry, Michael, Michael. persuaded you to do because well, you you the jury was out. The Judy was jury was out. No, it wasn't. The Judy jury was kind of open mouthed right. with surprise. <laughs> and then Michael said, Michael said to me, "You've got to do it, Jude," because he said, "I, I can't resist saying I live with a Bond woman." And um, and so I did do it. And I am very <laughs> pleased that I did because I had the most wonderful time. Right, okay. just <laughs> wonderful. Except that I was kept in that in that studio, my office, all the time, and I complained to Barbara Broccoli and uh, and 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 Michael and um, and said, "I'm I'm only everybody goes to glamorous places, and all I am, I'm in that office all the time." So then we did a film. Then we did one of them where we were at Stowe School mm -hmm. and they gave me a big trailer with Innsbrucks written along the side. And they said, you can never complain again because you've been in Innsbruck. <laughs> <clears throat> but I did get to go to Nassau. Mm -hmm. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I was drunk with power. What was that like? Oh, drunk with power I was, yes. Well, they say absolute, absolute power <laughs> corrupts absolutely. Yes, I'm sure it does. Yeah, well, now you know, because you've done it. You know, apart, apart from Bond himself, you know, your M was the most foreboding character in any Bond films. I mean, you know, just tell, tell us about that. Tell us about, I know it's a, potentially a boring question, but, you know, how did you approach your female M? I just, I just uh, played it like a person, like the person in the script, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and like the intention of... Um, you know, she gets to tell him off a lot and be quite bossy. And um, and uh, I had to kind of assert myself a bit because there hadn't been a woman M before, you know. I don't know. I went about it like I went about playing, uh, I don't know, anything, any part. But it's interesting you say that you don't know, but then you describe the process for that particular character. And so you do know, but you don't know you know. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it is. And you just rely on the director and you rely on the people you're acting with and you rely on the script. And then you get on with it and hope for the best. <laughs> I love it. It's so pragmatic. But it's so true because you can dress anything up, can't you? Because the thing is about football or, or sport, there's a score, isn't there? You know, so you know if you've won because you've got more goals than the other team. You know, and in banking, you that know is exactly you, right. Yeah, this is what was because this this is sort of um, ethereal win here, but you don't know how to get it. You you've hit it right on the head, Chris. Uh, it's not it's nothing you can get hold of, and nothing you know about, and nothing you know about till later. Yes, yes. Because nobody says, "Oh, wonderful, wonderful," as like everyone thinks people say, "Oh, wonderful, wonderful." They don't say that. They wait. You wait, and in a film, it. It's up to the audience to see it and decide what they think. And there's such a lag, well, isn't there? Because at least in the theatre, you get the applause at the end of the performance yeah. that night. If you're lucky. Yeah, no, yes. exactly. It's, it's still not the same. It's, there's still no, you know, there's still a definitive score. No guarantee. Yeah. And you always know anyway in a the theatre, it, if it's polite, 
uh, you know, clapping at the end, or if Ooh. it's really enthusiastic, oh, I loved it, you know. Yeah, yeah, that that instant. We get so canny. We get so so canny, but again, yeah. in the movies, and there's no big, there's no bigger premiere than a bomb premiere, and I've been very lucky to go to a couple, especially the one at the Albert Hall. Because and the the irony, you know, mm. the layers of, of of the irony keep being sort of slapped on because you, you again in the in the movies you have the party as if you've won before you have any idea of whether you've won or not. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it's you must make the best of the party. You see, you, never you must know. make the best because that might, you never know that might be the last pitch you'll get. <laughs> see, so now we are get. See, it's taken me a while to mine. Uh, the the Dame Judy uh, uh, format f- of of success, but what I'm what is what what is bleeding through now, very reluctantly it has to be said, but nevertheless, is hope for the best. Yes, hope for the best once you've done a hope job. Hope for the best. Yeah, and uh, do any, your homework. Yeah, at any of the parties, make the best of the party. So it's make the best. Hope hope for the best. Yes, and do your homework. Do every load the bases Absolutely. as well. Load the yeah, so front front load the bases. Absolutely. Now we're getting there. Come on, Judy. What's load the bases? What does load the bases mean? Okay, well, for example, so so um, if I'm doing an interview <laughs> like this, I will load the bases to try and make this interview to to try and make it impossible for this interview to go wrong, other than me just being a muppet. So I'll do all the research and I can. And me coughing all the time. Yeah, and you coughing. Yes. But you see, we'll still overcome that because I've loaded the bases. You see. Is that it? Is that what's done it? Well, I don't, we don't know. I'm hoping. But I know who I'm... to rely. <laughs> I know who to rely on now, Chris. Yeah. I tell you. Well, I'm hoping for the best, Judy. Is what I'm. You're doing. not just a. You're not just a chap with a bit of tinsel around your neck. Well, <laughs> now, you're loading yeah. the bases all the time. Yeah. Well, now you're thinking about it, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> now you're giving me the benefit. Of you the bet. Um, just before, you bet. Just before we wrap up, what, what, where was the doubt in your mind about Bond? What, why did you need the little nudge in the right direction from Michael? Uh, because I was, uh, I thought this is a big jump to do. Can I do this? Yep. And I mean, you know, filming came quite late to me because nobody wanted to put me in films, and I only ever wanted to be in the theatre. Um, so it was a, you know, it was. Um, <clears throat> I was, I didn't know what uh, to, I would make of it. I didn't know what I could make of it, and I was frightened because it's such a huge, as you said, it's such a huge kind of moving machine bond and you don't want to let the side down. And also you, you were the holder of the biggest bond secret of all time, you know, in as much as you knew you were going to get killed off or your M was going to get killed off, which was the best twist. I, I oh. didn't know that for a very long time. When did they tell you? Oh, I went and met Barbara Broccoli and um, Daniel Craig at the Wolseley. And they told me. And then somebody reported that I cried. Did you cry at all? <laughs> Some zero, she cried. Cried? I didn't cry. So there. So then I did, yes, at the beginning of Skyfall, I was told. Maybe it would, would have been better if they had never told me and it just happened, <laughs> you know. That would have been quite a surprising. But what a scene! I mean, scene. what to cry to cry in a Bond movie? You know, that's that doesn't happen very often. I don't think it may have ever happened at all. But I think there wasn't a dry eye in the house when 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 M died. Well, your M was obviously dying. Well, <laughs> when they told I don't you, know. when Barbara and Daniel told you, you know, when, when you're going to tell Dame Judi Dench that her M is going to get nobbled in the next Bond movie. Do you do you do you, do you bring up that in the, in the, during the starters, or do you, do you wait till you hit the whiskey? No, I think it was quite towards the end. I think it was. <laughs> I seem to remember. I think we got towards the end, but then I did get to do. Yeah. 
uh, a day on Spectre. Of course you did. I had, a, I had a little, you know, little uh, bit on on the screen uh, on Spectre. So you awesome. see, I got to do another one. Yeah. Eight. What's interesting about that conversation in the Woolsey is that they, they, you know, you must have been talking about whatever you're talking about, and they're both thinking, you know, nudging each other under the table, saying, "Let's just." When are we going to tell? When are we going to tell? I can't, I can't, I can't digest me, me caviar or whatever it is we're having. <laughs> well, I think I'd had a good go though. Yeah, I know you, Chris. Were. Don't you? I mean, it wasn't like we'd done one. If I'd done one or two, and they came and said, "No, you're going to be killed," I, I might have been a bit missed. No, I think but you... I'd had such a good go. Yeah. I'd had such a lovely time. And did you, you, have you watched any Bond films back? Have you watched any of those back? I have, yes, I have. And you like them? I have watched Bond. Yes, I do. I love them. I think they're good. Love them. Um, and have you heard about the present scenario with the with No Time to Die? Because it, it's, it's, it's going to be April 2021, I think, no. now. I think so. Is it? Oh, my God. I think so. Well, everything, oh, everything is delayed. Golly, that's not good, is it? Just before you go, I know that you've been working on something very recently with um, Sir Kenneth Branagh. Can you tell us about that? I have. Oh, gosh, I have. We had a wonderful time. Um, Ken has written a screenplay about... Um, it's called Belfast, and it's about his his childhood growing up in Belfast in the 70s. And he said to me, would you play my granny? in it. And I kept thinking, oh, yes, granny. <clears throat> and I said to somebody, going to play Ken Branagh's granny, they said, you're not old enough to play Ken Branagh's granny. And I kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, well, I shall do it with makeup. Then, of course, I find it's his granny in the 70s. So I have a hair, I have a wig as kind of black as a raven's wing. <laughs> and, oh, we had such a good time. And it was brilliantly organised with the COVID. Brilliantly. Everybody tested every day. And, of course, all of us separately and everybody in masks and things. It was so well organised and we felt very privileged and very, very lucky to be working. Very lucky. I know you know this, but he's a special the, person, isn't he, Kenneth Branagh? Absolutely. It was the 10th time we've worked together. I think he's a fantastic person and he uh, everything, is, everything is enormous fun and... I reckon that if you're directing a film and you've written it and everything and you then come and the day starts with a quiz of some kind, I think you can't go wrong much. <laughs> That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> of the other dames, um, do you do you all meet up? Do you have dame meetings? No dame meetings, no. We have dame phone calls, though, <laughs> from time to time, uh, just off, off and on. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, and I, I might get to see Joan Plowright at some point if we kind of sit in a garden, I suppose. I never know what the rules are, Chris. What about there's mum's net? What about dame's net? What about what? You know they have mum's net where all the mums get together and sort the world out. What about dame's net? Can't because you, you, you're wise old owls. You can what sort. What is what is what's mum's net? Yes, what's that? Mum's net is like if mum's net is the most, one of the most powerful. Um, online communities in the world. It's mums. Mums. Nobody messes with the mums. Yes, yes. I've got the mums bit. <coughs> right, so... The... It's the net. Oh, yes, I see. On the net. On the yes. net. So what about... D well, we could... Dame's net. Come on. Come on, Dame Judy. I don't think any of us can see or hear. <laughs> 
think, I think we'd be just hopeless at that. Hopeless. Does that come with the damehood? Is it called a damehood or a dameship? What, what is it? A dame, it's a knighthood, isn't it? What is it? Oh, I don't know. I've no idea. It's called dam in America, you know. They say they call you dam. Do they? The grand dam. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> No, not grand dam at all. Dam Judy Dench. Oh, right, I see. Dam, Smith. Dam that bloody Judy Dench. Um, <laughs> just reading about your career, Dame Judy, it's, 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 I mean, it, it reads nonstop. It's so full. It's so busy to talk to you, to, to interview you or to have a conversation with you. You could, you could literally talk to you for days, if not weeks. And here you are, 85 years young, on the eve of your 86th birthday, you know, Thank you so much for, for reminding yeah, me. Yeah, sorry, it's uh, September the ninth. Uh, sorry, December the ninth. In case you've forgotten. Um, the, day, the day after John Lennon was shot. Do you remember that? By the way, I do. The I we, do. Where were I you do. when that happened? I can't remember where I was. Yeah. I can't remember. I was just remembered being unbelievably shocked. Yes. Yeah, it must be strange to have. And it is incidentally, it's the day before Ken Branagh's sixtieth birthday. Ah, so he's getting on as well, and you'd like us to point that out. <laughs> I think you ought to sing to him. <laughs> I love Ken Brown. He used to live around the corner from me. He's always been so nice to me. He's, and he's so, he's so, he's so he's, famous, but he doesn't appear like, he doesn't carry himself like that at all, does he? Not a bit. Yeah. Not a bit. He's got a, he's got a wonderful sense of humour. He's great, he's great. No, just, I was going to say, just looking back, you've done it all. Reading it was exhausting. Right, look, looking back on it, I know you're so grateful because uh, you know how fortunate you've been and you're still fortunate and you still get offered loads and loads of jobs. You know, just just looking back, for anybody who's who's on the beginning of that journey, you know, you spoke to it earlier on, some kids, you know, leaving drama drama college or, or whatever oh. right now. Bit of advice from, from a lady who knows. Off you go. It's just don't don't give up. Don't give up. And don't give up going and seeing as much as you can. This is difficult, impossible to say, this year especially. But um, just it, it's the enthusiasm and the kind of energy that goes into the job. And it's so essential. And what this year has done um, is kind of, you know, lessened that for us all. And, um, you know, we're all told to retrain and get other jobs. I don't think that that is what we should do at all. I think it's an essential part of, um, I think, the whole business of entertaining people and keep people entertained. And, for instance, the whole the whole time that we've been locked down, people have turned to watching plays, watching films, watching anything, listening to music. Um, and that's, in a way, I think what's kept a lot of people going, and it's an essential thing. And so we have to kind of remember that it is essential and that it is something that reproduces itself, that kind of feeling of enthusiasm. It's very, very good for you. You know, it's like um, during lockdown, I've tried to learn quite a lot of stuff. It's just very good for you to, for us to watch and to learn and to keep going and have enthusiasm for it. And don't be damped by anything. And goodness knows I know how hard it is to say that and, uh, and to hear it. Um, but my heart just goes out to all those people who are trained and are trying to be actors and musicians and and wig makers and stage doormen and members of the crew and filmmakers and everything. Um, but the enthusiasm you need is what must somehow keep us all going. So never give up. The show must go on. The show has to go on. It's up to us to make sure that's the case. I think that's right, Chris.
Well, you are awesome. Thank you for your time. Um, give my love to your throat. Yes, I will. <laughs> I'm so sorry about it. It's fine. As long, um, as long as you're okay, that's all I care about. I'm I'm absolutely fine. It's nothing. It's nothing sinister. Thank goodness. Do get your tinsel on, please, Chris. For you, it's time for the tinsel. tinsel. It is definitely time for the tinsel, like never before. Christmas 2020, <laughs> and I'm going to take you up on the Quaker invite. I love you, Dame Judy Dench, and I thank you for your time because time is the one currency you can never get back. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have a tear in your eye after that? What a way for her to sign off. Dame Judy Dench, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. And uh, get ready for the next one. Ta-da. Sorry. Ta-da.